Jared Dicker, thank you so much for joining me today. Jared, you are a partner at TCG and you lead TCG Crypto. And what TCG is, it is a multi-stage investment firm dedicated to building consumer businesses. And Jared, you are leading the Web3 crypto kind of, you know, angle there. And, uh, you know, before diving into like what TCG is, what what do you do at TCG Crypto? I want to learn more about your background because I was going through your LinkedIn and I saw like you were at Washington Post, you're at Time, you're at Huffington Post. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that and how you got interested in media and your experience experiences there. Yeah, so I um I got interested in media pretty early. Um I was a wannabe rock star for a long time like I um if you haven't been to my house, hopefully you could come one day. But like, I have like a guitar room in my house. I'm very obsessed with music. I've seen fish hundreds of times. Like I've just been very deep in the music space and I always wanted to have a life in music, but I was a absolutely shitty uh, musician. So very early in my career, I realized that um, when you write about things, um, you know, or you cover things, like you get a lot of access and, you know, you're able to feel a lot of passion that you otherwise, you know, wouldn't, um, wouldn't be able to do. So I actually had like an almost famous moment when I was younger, like right out of college where I realized that it was going to be hard to break into the music business. But if I wrote about, you know, musicians or interviewed musicians, then, you know, maybe that would be a way to get free concert tickets and, you know, some exposure there. And, um, it was not early days of internet. Like this is like back in like 2009, 2010, but it was early days of publicists, like really understanding, uh, how to manage writers that weren't writing in print. You know, traditionally, when you'd ask someone for an interview, the question would be, okay, what's your circulation, right? Where is it going to be in the print magazine? Who gets exposure to it? And online, like, that data just wasn't available at the at the mass that it is today. So I kind of, like, faked it till I made it in the beginning. I didn't lie, but I would email publicists and say, hey, like, love this artist. I've been following them. Would love to cover them. Um, here's some areas that I've focused on. Here's my blog. And you know, that ended up um, snowballing into about like 100, I think 150 interviews with a lot of my favorite artists and starting to write for magazines like Relics and so forth. So very early was able to figure out, which I think a lot of people online today, especially people that leverage Twitter heavily, is that when you when you write online and put things online, you get exposure to things you you otherwise would have never gotten before. And, you know, I, in a more analog sense, <laughs> um, you know, am a good example of that. But that's where I really got deep into media, um, kind of fell in love with it, really wanted to be a writer, um, but it was very hard to break into. You know, we're going through a financial crisis, you know, right now. <laughs> Back then, there was another financial crisis through the mortgage crisis. So it was really hard to get jobs, especially on the creative side. And um, I applied for a job at the Huffington Post off a of Craigslist ad. Um, and I wanted to be like, I think it was, I don't even remember now, but I think it was like to be the editor of the lifestyle vertical or something like that. And they wrote back and they're like, no, like you're not qualified to do that. However, you know, we're trying to think of new and unique ways to leverage creators and people who know how to write and engage audiences on the business side, right? And this is back when Huffington Post was a blog. Its biggest competitor was Drudge Report. Daily Beast was starting to come up. But this is way pre-Huffington Post acquisition of AOL and what we know today. 
And I was like, sure. Like they offered to pay me like double what I would make as a writer. And I was like bartending and writing freelance. So I was like, this would be great. And um, that was another like key realization moment. Like if writing and being more public was giving you exposure, the realization that nobody was really innovating on the business side of media became very apparent. Um, and most people, like even today, like when you write, you want a byline, you want credit, you want to get personal exposure. So nobody really wanted to like exercise creative, uh, like creative prowess on the business side. Like the business side was just like sell against all of this creative work. And we had amazing technology there. We were, you know, really figuring out new ways that content was being respected online and through social. And we were like, there's probably big business here for us to, you know, create this for brands or start to license technology and build things that give brands more exposure to audiences the same way that, you know, creators were getting. And that really kind of like blew up, you know, the Huffington Post really kind of led the charge on things like native advertising and rethinking of uh, the means of which you could create content and win in search and win in social. And we built a big business out of that whole company sold to AOL. And I kind of got stuck in the flywheel in media at AOL was building out the business side of Huffington Post um, through what we were doing through the larger properties and um, became hyper obsessed there. And, you know, not to recap my entire history, but um, stayed in media for a long time. Um, we, the, the core the core technology team of the Huffington Post left and created a company called Rebel Mouse, um, which was really focused on creator software for a more distributed internet. So instead of focusing on just building your own website and driving traffic to it, how do you create content that could reach people where they are either through email or social? And a lot of major brands were built on Rebel Mouse, Axios, the Dodo, a bunch others there. So that was a ton of fun and uh, led me to like, you mentioned time. And then my favorite job up until this one um, was working at the Post. So I worked at the Washington Post after Bezos acquired the company and they had similar aspirations, right? They were like a traditional newspaper in a newspaper business facing the headwinds of business models changing, like advertising going to subscriptions and, you know, other more digitally native companies really starting to push them around. And it was like, okay, how can we like rethink our business, leverage the history and the value of the Washington Post, but build businesses around it. And we did that very successfully. We built software businesses, you know, we built distribution licensing businesses. Um, and that was a ton of fun. And I'll cap at this, but that's where I really started getting a bit more into crypto. When Trump came into office, uh, there was a bunch of headwinds in the news industry. And there were two major ones uh, that were very unrelated. Um, but you'll see where I'm getting at, like, there was a solution for both sides of that. You know, one was this notion of like deep fakes, fake news. Um, Trump was really like talking about that at a wide scale. And we were seeing that, right? Like people were no longer going to a website and consuming content. They were getting it through Facebook, through WhatsApp, through Twitter. So you couldn't really manage that distribution. Thus, a lot of people were getting information that they presumed was real, but it's not real. So that's a major issue. And that's an issue that hasn't been solved and is still an issue today. The other was advertising, right? Content was always free by way of advertising. And now all of a sudden, Google and Facebook at that time were taking 98% of the lion's share of online advertising. And publishers were like, holy shit, what are we going to do? Like, we have to be subscription products. And it's really hard to turn to your customer and say, hey, that thing you were getting for free for 50 years is now cost money. Like, most of them are like, no, right? They need something else around that. So that really led me to be like, what's a solution for this, right? Like, what could really be a means where you can identify like how content was created, whether it was manipulated, 
you could be able to manage it, right, in terms of like how it's distributed, how it could be monetized. And um, that led me really down the blockchain rabbit hole. I was into crypto, I was trading crypto, but never technically gone as deep as I did then. And this was back in 2017, really started to become apparent that a really interesting use case for blockchain could be putting content on chain. So I left, I became the CEO of a protocol called Poet and started building that out there. And that's where I really got hyper exposed to this space. And for the past, I'd say five, six years since Poet um, you know, was created, I've just been deep in this kind of intersection of media, crypto, how emerging technology helps evolve these things. And now I'm, you know, I, I lead the, um, the TCG crypto, uh, fund at the churning group, which is $120 million vehicle investing early stage in many of these companies. And of course, out of the growth fund, we invest, um, in, you know, larger consumer businesses that kind of hit this. So it's really been an awesome opportunity to bring all of this together and exercise it, uh, you know, at, at massive scales. So. Incredible. But so it's funny, like you're talking about media and whenever I think of media, I think of like reading a book or something, you know, some sort of like text usually. And so much of what you just spoke about was like tech oriented. So, and you know, maybe this is like, you're not very old. So I mean, maybe this is like not a good question to ask you, but like, was there a transition from what you were doing from like writing to suddenly now most of the things that you're, you're involved with is very tech oriented. Was that like a thing that happened while you're working or was that like already like way past? Like, no, everything was already most, you know, tech oriented. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I, I was able to experience, um, like the era that I entered this kind of world was really in like the blog era, you know, Twitter and other things were really start like starting to take more flight. Facebook had like Facebook wall applications and, stuff like that, things that no longer exist, but people were really starting to better understand distribution in media. So I feel like I've been able to both experience it, but also because of where I've worked, both in, you know, arguably like one of the biggest, most revolutionary digital media brands with the Huffington Post back in the day, as well as like one of the most, you know, like iconic legacy brands of Washington Post, like really understand how media has evolved and what's happened there. And like, hopefully like have some sort of prediction as to where, you know, things are going. But I think like one, you didn't ask this question, but it kind of like anchors on it. Like one thing which is very important to note is that media used to have full control of its entire business, like end to end, like going back decades, like 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, like there were disruptions, but nothing as significant as like when Google search came out and when, you know, Facebook and uh, social came out and main and like mainly like if you think of a media company in the 80s or the 90s it was like they controlled their rate card right like i've heard stories of agencies calling media executives and wanting to purchase a television com commercial or a print ad and the executive basically puts it on hold and they're like making up a number it's like and whatever it is it is right like there's nothing for like these agencies to really benchmark against they wanted the exposure they wanted to be aligned with that media so they pay it um, they manage the distribution, right? Like the post managed their printing plants forever. So not only did you manage like the media and the paper, but even the distribution and how those things were created, you had a piece of that pie as well. And you knew your audience, right? You knew who your subscribers were, you knew who, who was reading you. And then all of a sudden all that shit blew up, right? Like, I think like it really started with Google. And one of the greatest stories like that I love to hear is like early New York times was one of the first like 
major media companies to really go digital. I think back in like 95, 96, I'm going to get that wrong, but it's somewhere in that era. And the reason why ads are so like shitty, right? Across the internet and why they're so placed to the side is because like there really was a strong lack of attention towards really focusing on like how advertising should be integrated within digital media. Like most ad teams at these larger media companies didn't focus on digital like early days when it was web it was an afterthought it was like i want you to buy the print mat like the print placement i want you to sponsor an event and then you know we'll throw in these ads on the side that you could get because we can't measure them we don't know if they work and effectively like nobody was focusing on it no one was working on it and that's where google was super smart google came in and said a lot of people are using the internet you know these individual isolated media companies aren't really focusing on like how best to build an experience here we're going to better understand how people are using the internet and we're going to build, you know, an advertising experience for that a la search. But then also they power most of the programmatic ad infrastructure. DFP is the technology that all these publishers and media companies ended up using. So that's why they took that over because media companies, even though they were ahead on it, didn't necessarily understand how significant, right? That was going to be for their business. And it's funny because today, the ads are the same. It's like 300 by 250, 300 by 600 shitty ads that just sit on a page that are programmatically driven oftentimes. There's no like, there's been attempts at creative experiences, but they're not there. So I think like most of this, most of the time media gets rugged, right? Media gets rugged as it related to advertising. They got rugged as it related to classifieds when everything went to Craigslist. Like there wasn't a thorough comprehension of like how big of a business these things could have been on their own until it's too late. Right. And the last thing to fall was really like owning the audience, owning the distribution when Facebook came out and Twitter came out and people were getting media through search. Um, you no longer really had to go to the site to understand how to navigate, right? Your news or media cycle. You were effectively getting that elsewhere. And that was like the last piece of the pie that really was like the stronghold that media still had. So now media operates in a world of tech, understanding how distribution works, understanding how the data works and reporting works and what advertisers and others are looking for. And I think that's why technology has become so important because that has really become the driver of how media needs to operate and the confines of restrictions that they operate within. And if you could build your own or think about that, then hopefully you get an edge. Okay. So there's so many ways we can talk about this conversation and I want to talk about distribution now because that's so important. You know, people can build the best product ever, but if you don't have any distribution to like show people the product, then it's kind of uh, like not really worth it. How does the landscape look today? Cause, cause I mean, in theory, anyone now can spread their message and spread their product. And it's amazing. On the other hand, it's like, you got to go through like YouTube, Twitter, you got to go through like a few channels to like do that. Um, and what are your thoughts on that? Is that like good, bad? What does the future hold for distribution? I'm a big believer that, you know, mass distribution and the ability to really enable the long tail, which is now become, you know, a lot of the long tail becomes these, these like Mr. Beast, you know, type brands because of the distribution that they're able to get. Um, I think that that's been amazing, um, you know, in terms of like totally democratizing people's ability to create and build online. Like the example I gave you earlier, which was my personal experience, which was, hey, I want to be a music writer. 
back then, like you could have a website blog, try to be SEO compliant, maybe share across some social networks. But for the most part, if you weren't writing for Rolling Stone or weren't creating for like EW or any of like the entertainment media type focused publications, you weren't really going to be known. Um, and now that's completely changed, right? Like we love independent takes. People are building brands, people are building their expertise and they have the ability to reach mass audience. And there's amazing tools that have been built like Substack, you know, and so forth that really accommodate the different mediums, whether you want to do podcasts or video or text or oftentimes all in one. So I'm, um, I'm a massive fan of that. Like, I think that it's allowed people to move a lot quickly through the system. It's given exposure to people that may, might've been underrepresented that can now be represented. So there's a lot of good, you know, there's a lot of bad, right? Like the notion of fake news and, you know, we see while still up for debate, like you saw quite clearly what happened to Silicon Valley bank in a situation where everyone is online, um, you know, and would that have happened, you know, and, you know, would, people have pulled out or would, you know, would the message have been more constructed, you know, for better or worse TBD, if, you know, there wasn't mass distribution. And because there was, you know, you saw something that might've taken two weeks, a month, six months happen in, you know, just 24 hours. So, you know, there's a lot of new challenges that come up that people are dealing with, um, you know, fake news, things of that nature, I think are like some of the biggest ones that are very hard to tackle and figure out. But in the grand scheme of things, I think distribution has been amazing. Now, what I think is very important as it relates to media and something that, again, like I think historically we've constantly seen, like I said before, media companies trying to play catch up, you know, based on the disruptions that are happening outside of them versus them identifying it, disrupting themselves and then being able to push through, right, is the notion of like, what is a media brand now? Because there, there is a ton of value in tradition, reputation, process of work and operations of these companies that allow them to continue to stand strong. And I think like we've seen that very clearly on the music side where in 2000 with Napster, you know, everyone's saying labels are dead. And now, you know, labels continue to be extremely powerful, extremely important for both artists and for, you know, the business of music. And I think more traditional media companies should be thinking about that where you're identifying, okay, like, what is this disruption caused? And how are people now behaving in this new world? Well, people have the ability to build a brand on their own, right? You can become a music star by way of TikTok, you can become a top writer and make a lot more money and get a lot more cred and build a lot more reputation, a la Substack versus writing for the Washington Post. So how do you maneuver to structure and set yourself up to be successful in this new wave? So like one idea I've had for a while that I've pushed on strong is like, what happens when like media companies start acting like record labels where it's not, you know, the Washington Post that is the brand and what people have relationship to, but you actually become, you know, an environment that fosters individuals to build their own brand, create, and you operate more in the background, right? You give operate, like um, operational support, you give distribution, right? You can do all these other things that provide a lot of value to the creator that they hopefully can't get elsewhere, but it's no longer like, Hey, look at us as the brand. That's the big value here. It's more so how do we equip and become a venue that attracts these independent creators in a more 
in a more attractive way than, you know, them going out on their own. So I think like there's a lot of like logical things that that start to happen amongst that. But I I love the notion of distribution. I think the pace of innovation in media is accelerating, you know, beyond beyond people's comprehension. And we're constantly seeing new ways for people to create, to engage platforms come in and out. Why I love, you know, crypto so much, because I think crypto both can be accommodating to existing means of distribution on how best to monetize, but also creates entirely new behaviors and new ways to do things. So I really think out of everything that we discussed, like AI, VR, like any of these emerging trends, the biggest like cultural and platform shift really is within crypto because it is in fact changing people's behaviors of how they create and consume. So um, it's amazing like being able to, you know, work in a position where I get to like monitor all of these things 24 seven work with these companies and also have the acumen of how, you know, media has worked and continues to work to try to figure out, you know, how best to set up both technology and, you know, the creators to, you know, take advantage of this. So this is a big tangent, but I, uh, I wrote a blog post, uh, I don't know, a few weeks back about Mr. Beast. And it, it, the title was like, Mr. Beast is going to be the wealthiest person on earth. And, uh, and basically the, the thesis was, or kind of the, the argument was that, you know, he has the largest audience in the world. I mean, w one of the, the, the largest audiences, I think that his total subscribers, if you add in all of his channels, his non uh, us, uh, English channels with like Spanish and Arabic, whatever, I think it was like 245 million YouTube subscribers. Plus he's got Twitter and Instagram and all this other stuff. And I was like, well, he's going to become the most famous person on the planet because he's distributing this content for free all over on these you know, relatively open internet platforms, right? YouTube and whatnot. And he's going to monetize eventually because, you know, he's doing like feastables. He's doing like some really cool stuff, uh, uh, Mr. Beast Burger, um, but it's not necessarily ultra scalable to an international audience. The most scalable item or the best monetization method in the history of mankind, in my mind, are, are NFTs, like digital goods that anyone can buy from anywhere with a currency that is, you know, easily transmitted across borders, right? Um, and I'm like, Dude, he's gonna he's gonna become you know every year he could generate billions of dollars by saying hey guys I'm releasing my NFT it's four four dollars and you know it does X Y Z whatever or it does nothing it's just art whatever and um, uh, yeah I, I just because I, I know TCG is involved with Knight Media and mm -hmm. Knight uh, is Mr Beast's manager I believe I think that there, there's some mm -hmm. things in there Correct. Um, yeah. so so yeah I mean like yeah it was kind of just like a, a cool thing I wanted to write about you know whether or not it's true I have no idea I just like the, the title sexy. Um, what, what, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Is that kind of an absurd, absurd notion or is that like, but you know, possible? My point of view in like a macro lens of NFT and media is that I think today we've seen, you know, a few major moments in media, like not today, but like the Royal today, like over the past, whatever, two decades or whatever. And, you know, a big one was advertising, which is very important, which kind of you mentioned about Mr. Beast, because I think distribution is very important as it relates to media. And one thing I think crypto, it didn't get wrong, but it might've been kind of like a misplaced assumption is that all content is valuable in the means that it should be transacted on like from the first immediate point. And I think many people realized very quickly that when you start to create that friction and it's not net new, right? Like everyone hates paywalls, right? Like everyone hates like going to a site. They want to read one article, they get hit with the paywall. Oftentimes they like 
text a friend to try to get them to unlock it for free. Like that's like the first thing you do, right? You, you, you don't subscribe. You know, the first foray into like NFTs and media were really around that. It was like, you know, purchase this, you can unlock. And when it's really kind of focused just solely on like a single thing, like an article or a song, I think there, yes, there will be an audience and oftentimes speculators, but for the most part, you're choking distribution, you know, at the expense of maybe making, you know, a hundred dollars, but then you may never get that user again. Right. So I think identifying that distribution is very important is continuously going to be like a key thing in media. And I think as NFTs really start to think about their role as it relates to, you know, um, a creator and their audience, they must have distribution in mind to not necessarily choke out, you know, by way of friction. Another one is like convenience over quality, right? I think crypto is really anchored deeply on this other notion that like quality content deserves to be paid for. If things are good, people will pay for them. Again, there is a bucket, I think, that does that. But for the most part, if you're asking people for money, like they'll pay for convenience over quality like nine out of 10 times. Like if it's something that like makes their lives better, makes them feel happy, makes them feel sad, whatever means it'll be. I'm sure you could think of a million things that you spend money on daily that fit within that pocket. You know, convenience is pretty key. And I think that's another challenge that like crypto really hasn't thought that deep on, which is, okay, like we're putting such an emphasis on this notion that like these things are great. They're one of ones. And again, there's a market for that. But to reach a more mass scale of interest, you need to really think about like what this shit actually does and why it's going to be. So the last thing that I'll say, like as it relates to that, is that I do think that there is a very wide range for NFTs to play as it exists within user behaviors of today. And what I mean by that is like membership online has really blown up. Subscriptions have blown up. People are really thinking about, okay, how do I have access to something? How do I engage it? How do you give loyalty and perks and certain things to individuals? And to date, that's really been like duct taped together, right? Through a bunch of different things like email, which used to just like at its purest is a way to communicate between one people or, or one person and another, or, you know, a bunch of people together has now become this notion of identity, like how you log in. It's become like, like this means of communication for like what you buy, how you get rewards, where you get discounts, downloading tickets. And to be real, like email was never meant to do that, right? Like it's just been a venue that everyone's had and we've tried to figure out ways where we could piece things together in order to build an experience, but everyone hates those experiences, right? Like tickets are like so transactional and meaningless, like especially now that they're digital and not physical, like you like get it, you use it, it's done, right? Like you have no relationship to the customer. You, there's no data that transacts over that, very minimal through Ticketmaster. So like what, where I like to think of NFTs is like, okay, this is a purely digital first innovation that has been created, you know, by means of digital transacting digital goods online, buying, selling, collecting. How can that start to be looked at as a foundational technology for a lot of these behaviors online, right? And when you think about media, to your example of a Mr. Beast, or if you're thinking of like a My Morning Jacket, or, you know, anyone who's looking to bridge a relationship between their customer, then I love the idea of NFTs being, you know, a way to start to segment the top of the funnel down the funnel where, okay, I have this audience. Maybe I have an audience that just likes to passively follow me, but there's likely an audience 
that wants to stay closer to me, claim an NFT, right, to be within this community. You claim that NFT, and then that NFT could be free, right? I think like the the notion that like NFTs have to be paid for in order to get an access, I think is also short-sighted. Because if you look at businesses online, driving down the funnel is key, right? So allow your audience to be there, have them join, right, your membership community by way of NFT, which I think is going to be amazing because you could get email, you could tr- you could communicate, people have access, it's one of one, it feels exclusive, and then you think about your business down the funnel. Okay, anyone with this NFT, if it's my morning jacket, could get early ticketing to my show, preferred seating, maybe discount goods and merch and things of that nature, or maybe there's unique things that only people within this community could get, and they'll continue to pay. Right. Like a lot of people who are like joining these communities and wanting to be a part of it, they don't want to like leave with money. Right. They want to actually figure out, okay, what's exclusive and unique tied around my passion that I could continue to engage with that's just made for me. So, um, there's a company, Medallion, that we invested in that is actually doing that today, like with like in the music space with bands like My Morning Jacket, Tyco Jungle, Greta Van Fleet, a bunch of others. But they're showing that this works, right? They basically have moved fan clubs on chain. Fans could claim the NFT. Once they have the NFT, it's up to the artists what they want to do. But these artists are doing amazing things. They are giving early ticketing so you could circumvent the headache of Ticketmaster. Like you could get backstage. You can download a digital own, uh, only box set or vinyl or something physical and acquire that. And people fucking love it. And they love it because it's like music fans, if anyone knows, right? right? Like if you go to a lot of shows. I go to like 50 shows a year. I go to a show and I'll spend more money for more experience. I don't go to a show and say, I wish I left with 10 bucks from the band. Like, I don't give a shit about that. I will continue like paying in to get experiences that make me feel good, right? That make me want to be a part of it. So I think that arena, to your point, like whether it's a Mr. Beast or whether it's a My Morning Jacket or it's it's a Washington Post, I believe holy that nfts are going to be a better membership tool as it relates to a direct to consumer relationship across a variety of industries than what's been duct taped and existed prior okay so we talked about traditional media kind of digital media nft media and i want to talk about tcg um i've I've heard about it but could you tell me like what is tcg and i'm pretty sure they're involved in like traditional movie media and, and much more, but I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So um, TCG is the Chernin group. It was founded by um, Peter Chernin, who was uh, president, C- uh, uh, president and global CEO of News Corp for almost two decades. So greenlit Titanic and Avatar and oversaw the league deals and created Hulu. So was always really on the cutting edge of media and continues to be to what you're alluding to, like outside of the firm, uh, Peter, CEO of North Road, which is one of the largest like entertainment studios, production companies, um, you know, for uh, a lot of the things, you know, we we see and engage with today. Um, and, you know, at its earliest moment, you know, the churning group really felt that we'd have an edge by identifying companies, founders, right, that were really thinking of new ways of how consumers want to behave online. And, you know, the firm was launched about a decade plus, a little over a decade ago um, with its first fund and really kind of leaned on that, right? It was like, where is their passion? How can we identify this? What are new emerging models on the internet? Content of commerce being one that I think the Trinity Group has, you know, driven 
um, kind of um, driven the driven the ship on, led the ship on, whatever. <laughs> but has led the charge on is a, probably a better um, you know a better phrase for that. Um, and those early investments include things like the Athletic, Barstool Sports, um, you know, OpenSea, and others. And now, you know, the the core fund um, uh, is in its third vintage and invests more later stage across again these broader consumer type brands. So, um, you know, investing in Funko collectibles, they were an investor in Golden Auctions, which has gone to Collectors Universe. So, really early on trading cards, PSA, grading, you know, that sort of market. Um, what I love, um, you know, and I think is, uh, you know, emblematic of, you know, how this firm thinks is a lot of these content to commerce businesses. So in a similar fashion to how, you know, Barstool really started with Portnoy hustling and then, you know, him really thinking about how that starts to expand, bringing on different creators, driving new businesses through that, right? Where today you see uh, what Dave does with pizza, you know, what Spit and Chicklets does with Pink Whitney and Vodka and things of that nature, like really rethinking how creators build media brands and then drive value down the funnel for audiences. There's a bunch in those buckets. So Hodinkee, Meat Eater, Epic Gardening, Crunchyroll kind of all exist within there. So it's really been an amazing lens um, that they've operated on. And I think it's very truly unique and amazing. And that was really kind of like the ethos of why we got very excited about creating an early stage fund, um, you know, focusing on the Web3 space under the umbrella. So as I mentioned, TCG invested in OpenSea back in 2018, but m more recently, uh, invested in Dapper Labs in 2021 and then led Zed Run, which was virtual horse racing. And I think what they were seeing was something very similar to what I was seeing. And again, like I've been in and out of the space in media, tech and crypto for about a decade. And what I was seeing in 2020 and 2021 was I was personally investing in a lot of companies in the Web3 space focused on media consumer. And I was really finding that, you know, things started to significantly shift, right? One of which was not only were consumers starting to get a lot more interested in Web3, but founders were starting to get a lot more interested expanding beyond just crypto audiences, right? It was no longer like, who are the MetaMask users and how do we really target and um, engage them? But more so like, how do we build this thing to something larger outside of that? And usually that could like be very simple, uh, simply described through like industry. And you've lived through this too, right? It was no longer just banking and lending and trading, but it was entertainment, it was fashion, it was sports, it was music. And that was something that, you know, both the firm and myself had a ton of experience in. The other was that, you know, a lot of these founders traditionally in the Web3 space would work with VCs in a way where VCs would have expertise in tokenomics or a deep understanding in native language of, uh, you know, blockchains like Solidity, uh, Solidity and so forth. And it was very, very, very heavily focused on that. And now, right, as these things started to expand beyond that in direct relation to like founder interest and consumer interest of bridging this beyond just finance into, you know, more passionate arenas, there were a lot of questions around like, how do we do go to market, right? How should we be branding our company? How should we think about traditional business models on top of you know, crypto business models. What does distribution look like? What does SEO look like? Like, what, like, how do we do better retention with our customers? 
And that was really like the light bulb moment of like, okay, like, you know, I've worked in this space for six years, but like, this really feels like the time where every single piece of the puzzle really wants to figure out how to make this work and make this as big as we could possibly make it. So um, we, we launched TCG Crypto back in September of 21, kind of on that principle, right? Of basically saying, okay, we deeply understand media and consumer. Um, we understand distribution and how creating companies on the internet work. Um, and we're all operators, right? Like we built companies, we've scaled them, we've worked at large institutions, smaller institutions and so forth, but we could really kind of put our expertise to practice as it relates to these companies. And we truly believe that Web3 was going to change many of the consumer behaviors online. And we really wanted to, you know, get ahead of that and work with these companies and be a part of it. And very fortunately, I think, you know, we're kind of like well on our way, like we being like an industry of doing this, right? I think we're seeing a ton of passion around sports and experimentation and things happening, you know, even on the more traditional side, right, of what the NBA and the NFL are really thinking about things too. On the entertainment side, right, like new ways of thinking of fandom, new ways of thinking about how artists get royalties and value out of that, how people create content online is just like in its infancy, but it already feels so real. And you see major labels like UMG and Warner participating directly in this, right? You see traditional media companies really thinking about it too. So there really has become a moment of doing this. And, you know, we on the uh, TCG crypto side, right? Like really kind of like focus on consumer, which I think is like a tough term in crypto because there are so little <laughs> consumers in general across everything. So everyone is kind of like a consumer company or thinking about how to build, how to build for their customers. But, you know, I think, What's very important is that, you know, people are continuing to kind of build and better understand like what people want, understanding how audience are segmented and how both are equally important. Like, I think if you spoke to me a year and a half ago, you know, a big focus was like, okay, how do we onboard? And you know this too, like onboard more people into crypto. Um, I think now while there's still like an emphasis on doing that, I think there's a realization that like, okay, the people that are currently existing in crypto, even though the number is small, oftentimes ARPU is higher, right? They'll spend more money, they'll spend more time. And that's a very big audience to focus on and a very important audience. And then there is the audience outside of crypto that is important as well, but they don't necessarily have to come together or there doesn't have to be a bridge to them, right? They're, they could both be engaged and uh, participate in amazing, meaningful ways. So yeah, like we've, we've been operating this for about 18 months. The team is amazing. You know, I think uh, anyone who knows TCG Crypto knows that, you know, we're very much about our people and, you know, Gabby Goldberg, Jonathan Moore and Zion Thomas um, all, all have reputations and brands on their own that they've been able to bring to the table here. And, you know, our goal is to just continue continue to invest and help these companies build and scale to provide value and meaning to their customers. That's awesome. Okay. So yeah, I spoke to you right before we recorded about how I think it's interesting. Initially, when there's a new ecosystem or technology being developed, it's very like infrastructure focused. And um, there's four sections or four kind of categories that we invest in. It's like technical infrastructure, financial infrastructure, consumer gaming, or like the rough four categories. And our thought process was, oh, it's going to be very heavy on the financial infrastructure and technical infrastructure just because like it's pretty new emergent, you know, ecosystem. But um, I feel like we have our few pieces, like there's some key pieces of infra that everyone uses. And then like there's everything else is like consumer. And it's really the consumer products are that are like, in my mind, crushing it, especially when you look at these 
I mean, I call them like media entertainment companies, but like these PFP projects like Yuga, Artifact, uh, Moonbirds, whatever. And that to me was like, I mean, it just wasn't something I was expecting. I, w- I was pretty surprised by that. What is your take on that? Because it lines up perfectly with, with your guys' focus of like con- consumer content crypto. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say one thing is, I think we've gone to a point as an industry where blaming the onboarding friction of wallets and signups is kind of a cop. It's like, you know, like for years, right? Because oftentimes it's like, oh, like when onboarding gets there or when mobile gets there, you know, then then these things will come. Oftentimes, one, nobody's solving that problem. Everyone's just identifying the problem. But oftentimes, there is no problem to solve if you want things to be on chain with the current mechanisms of how things work today. And two, I don't think that's true, right? I think what at least what I've seen over the past year, many of these companies coming to fruition and going to market is that if the juice is worth the squeeze, people will do it, right? Like to the My Morning Jacket medallion example that I mentioned earlier, more people are signing up for fan clubs on chain than they have for these bands off chain. and Granted, the onboarding process is fluid. It's great. But like people still have to sign. They still have to get in. But people want to get the value right out of what they're going to get once they get access to those things. So for me, as it relates to like where we're at with consumer and how we think about those things, I think people have to people have to get over the fact that onboarding likely can cause friction and do the best that they possibly can in order to make that fluid. But focus more on what you're actually building and what value that provides and TAM of that market and the passion of that market, because I will bet you, you know, I won't bet actual money, but nine out of 10 times, users will go through that, um, you know, in order to get there, if that value is there. So that's, that's saying, and not in like a negative way, but that's saying like, I think a lot of these companies that have built that have struggled while friction could be there on the onboarding, like oftentimes it's like just a, just need to focus a bit more on like what you're doing, what you're providing and speak to your customer more. So that's one thing just on consumer that you made me think about. But on the media side, I agree. Like I was too fascinated with, you know, the success of Yuga and then, you know, the succession of all of these other companies that have then been created after that. You know, I knew the Yuga crew early and um, loved them. Um, like when I like first met them, but it's when, you know, uh, Board Ape was sub, you know, one ETH, right? It was a lot of projects, a lot of people building. But there was clearly something magical happening there, but I don't think anyone could have predicted that. Now, what I do think about often, um, because we are uh, media, like we are media experts in our firm, um, and you know that is definitely how we position ourselves on the on the crypto side as well. But a lot of our media side has really been in like music so far, and we have looked at ga- like we're deep in gaming too, as you are, uh, and a few other things. But I've still I still debate in my mind, oftentimes, like what media looks like as it relates to NFTs, whether Yuga is an exception to the rule, because I do think Yuga has proven that they are definitely here and here to stay, whether these audiences are the same audiences that'll that'll expand outside crypto and what that looks like, right, for more traditional means. Like I have personally, while I am excited about people to prove this out, personally, like to use music as an example, I've never been able to get overtly confident on the fact that there is going to be enough fans that want to own a piece of their artist royalties or their artist music. I hope we get there. I think it's very cool, but I do understand the challenges and the friction. And I speak to a lot of artists and I know the labels. Like, I just feel like that is a, that is a hurdle that is, you know, going to be a big one to 
overcome versus, again, to use music as an example, the notion that fans love artists, they spend money to go see their favorite acts live, or they'll purchase, you know, merch, or they'll, you know, go to an event that they put on. So how can we create very, very, very cool things by way of NFTs that give fans more access to those sort of experiences? So I think like the biggest benefit of what we've seen as, you know, bystanders, let's say of like Yuga and Moonbirds is understanding people's behaviors as it relates to purchasing assets, what speculation looks like, what roadmaps and engagements look like as these games launch, what makes people want to stay, what makes people want to leave. The biggest critique I have for most of these NFT projects as it relates to like the PFP projects as it relates to media is that so far, the incentive to get out has been higher than the incentive to stay in. And I think that needs to reverse. So, so sorry, when you say that, what, what do you mean? How is the incentive higher to leave? You mean just like making money? Yes, yes. Like okay. I think I think no matter what, for most, most of these PFP projects, even though people may have high engagement, high retention as subsequent things drop, the end goal, and again, this is a hypothesis, it's not proven, but like I guess 95% of the people that you talk to are hoping that their investable asset and their PFP is going to go up 10x and then they'll sell it, <laughs> right? So like in media, that's not... That's not good behavior, right? In like traditional media, you want recurring revenue, you know, you want retention, you want to keep and captivate an audience. So I think there's things that we're learning and observing, but I do think as this thing, like as these things start to blossom to media brands or really figuring out what this model means for Hollywood or what this model means for music, I think that very simple notion of how do you move from the incentive to get out being greater than the incentive to stay in to the incentive to stay in greater than the incentive to get out is going to be very important. And it sounds very simple put that way. And I'm proud of myself for being able to put it that way. But I do think that it's hard because, again, going back to the two the two customers of crypto, consumer crypto, there is the crypto native customer that is very important, that spends a lot of money, spends a lot of time and wants these sort of products. And those shouldn't be shot away from. Right. But then there is another mass uh, that may want something different or may be interested in something different or may not have the means to engage in that sort of environment. And it's a decision of like who you want to reach and what you want to do. So it's been the greatest lesson, I think, um, you know, especially as it relates to like what you're mentioning with like NFTs being one of the greatest business models that are ever going to happen in the Internet. Like we are able to see in real time how this is being worked how behaviors are being maneuvered. People want to say OpenSea is down so hard from 5 billion GMV. I mean, OpenSea is still doing 500 million GMV. I mean, that's a massive, massive business. So, you know, I think it's, for me, it's like more deeply understanding like what those behaviors are, I think is going to be increasingly interesting. Are they worth those valuations? You know, I don't know. Like all of that is TBD. Like will will a Disney acquire these companies? All that is T TBD. Like will major networks and so forth. So like, I think like exit path is also something interesting to think about here, which is what what are the next steps? Like, is it valuation? Is it token? How should people be thinking about these things? So yeah, I don't want to go too much on a tangent, but it, but I agree with you. It's been fascinating. And I think I've been personally proven wrong a few times, like in how I've thought things were going to shift and change. And they've continued to kind of move, especially on some of these projects in such a positive direction that I think it warrants 
it warrants, you know, people's people's awareness around that. Okay, so if you were in charge of, let's say, a Yuga, it doesn't have to be, well, we, you know, we can just say a Yuga type PFP project. And, um, and also, I agree with you, like, I think that the valuations we see on some of these PFPs is uh, not normal. Uh, that being said, like the valuation on like a first edition Charizard is also not normal, but like, it's just like what, what people want to pay for it. Right. So, so who knows, but so if you were in charge of one of these companies, what, what, what would you want to do in order to turn it into a more real media company and who would you angle it to, to, to exit to, you know, would it be, an, would it be a Disney? Would it be a Yuga? Would it be like, you know, would you go IPO or token? Like, what would you do? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that it's very important to like, identify certain certain aspects of like what these companies actually do and how that pairs to what we've known historically. Like I love being able to take a simple take in that people leverage blockchains to buy, sell and hold digital goods. And there is an accelerated behavior in doing that. And we've seen that through PFPs. And it's like, where else do we see that? Well, we see that in the trading card space. Like I literally spend so much money on boxes of cards just to get the euphoria to sit down with my twin boys and just open them. And I just open them and I put them in and some that, you know, could be valuable. I put in a different sort of case, but like, it's way less about like me making any money on those cards, even though hopefully one day, like I do. And it's more so just like the fun of it. Like, like we love sports. We love hockey. We love all these things. And we just go deeply into it. And that behavior is very replicated, right, on what's happening through what we see with these PFP projects. So, like, one obvious thing that I think, like, on the media side is, like, this notion of, like, digital to physical, I think I continue to be obsessed over in that I think phase one of this has been, okay, we see that people are behaving like this around digital goods online on these PFP projects. Great. I think that's phase one. I think phase two is going to be awareness from a lot of traditional type companies that's like, holy shit, this stuff works. People value digital. They want these sort of assets. They engage with them. There's all these unique things that can be done with them. We need to start expanding our business into this realm. Um, and I think that that's going to become very, very, very obvious. Like I think when you buy you know, a physical, like when, when I buy this book, right. Which is like, please kill me. Like the history of punk. Like when I buy that book, it would be amazing if there's a digital component of that book. And then I'm automatically through that NFT, like in a community with all these other people who like punk. And then I get exclusive ticket drops and it just like better, better connects the dots between those things. That's something that I think is going to be very important. And I think on the inverse of like a yuga becomes very important. It's like, okay, people go to target, they buy collectibles. We see that with Funko, right? It's like, what's Board Ape's position in that sort of thing? It's like, we know that we're focused very heavily on like speculative, um, you know, digital games, but what does a top tier game look like on Xbox? Like if it relates to these sort of things, like how are people using and doing this? Like I applaud Yuga very early on. I think it was insanely cool, especially as a spectator to see how people leverage that IP to build out all of these different things, whether it's IPAs or coffees or, you know, like, like in-store retail type experiences. But those sort of things I think become more and more and more fascinating as you think about expanding. I don't think it's easy. Like, I think there's a lot of PFP projects that like have a roadmap where they're like, okay, yeah, so we're going to do this thing with Netflix and we're going to create a show. In order to do that, going back to what I said before with those two audiences, it's like, okay, 
Well, you better be super confident that your crypto native audience wants to do that because that's who you're depending on as you go here. And if it falls flat, it falls flat. So there are kind of like different means to do that. But I do think there's quite literal things that could be done today. Like I do think toys, I think means of which like people want to collect experiences that people want to start to do those things can definitely be inverted into a more physical landscape that I would focus, you know, focus very heavily on. Is it right for me to call them media entertainment companies? It's funny that you say this, like I was trying to describe it the other day and I struggled, you know, I, I, I've also heard IP company. I call them like community media companies because I do feel like what's very cool is how bottoms up they really are. Like, you know, there's companies like StoryDAO and others that are really like attempting to get in and figure out like what it's like when everyone's on the foundational layer of the writer's room and work through it and TBD on all of those. But I think like that notion is cool. And I feel like the words that encompass like why this is so unique is, you know, it's community owned, it's collaborative. Those things I think are very unique as it relates to traditional media. So I don't, I don't know, like they could be web three media companies. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily challenge that. I just don't think if I'd call it that, but like Hume, for example, right. Is a company that we invested in, which we call a web three entertainment company. And they're doing like two interesting things, right? One is they have a platform to create these like virtual meta stars. And we believe that more and more artists, right. Whether virtually native or traditional will want to build a more native online persona where they could engage fans more deeply and, you know, build, build business and experiences that way. And then they've actually created their own meta stars, right? The first was angel baby, which actually two days ago, finally like launched on Spotify and more kind of like native channels. Like it was very web three focused for about a year and a half. And now is starting to expand beyond that. And Clio is another one, but those I'd call web three entertainment companies. But I do think that they've bridged the gap in an interesting way where you've, in my view, the music NFT space is super small. So like, I feel like they've like hit the ceiling on what they could really be doing there. And now they're expanding through like Spotify and TikTok and other means. So it is starting to go more in towards traditional entertainment. I know Doodles is starting to do that on Board Ape too. So maybe it is fair, but I do love like, I don't want to lose the value of the fact that the community and audience is so deeply involved in a way that never really felt attainable prior. Um, so yeah, I mean, up for debate. I'm undecided. Awesome. All right. So do you have a hard stop? Um, I have a hard stop at like 3.15. Okay. So 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Here. All right. So I want to quickly talk about North Road and what you and your and the other partners at TCG are thinking about the future of, you know, movies and, and, just, and just like video content in general, just because I've seen some pretty incredible, you know, AI has made the cost of creating content 100x cheaper. Um, and and people can now create you know, almost like a full series with the simple iPhone video and using like Runway ML or some of these cool new AI tools and create a whole new, you know, high, pr pretty, pretty high production like series comparative to what they were able to do before. What are your thoughts on that? Like what's going to happen to Hollywood? Yeah, so I, I'm not going to speak for North Road because I'm not as... Uh, I'm not involved on that side, but I have opinions on AI and media because I've been obsessed with it for a bit. Um, so I'd love to talk about that. It's amazing how fast, like, <laughs> this is all happening. Like, even even the whole GPT-4, GPT-3 thing, like, like, it was impossible not to just be glued to what was happening there. And I think, like, my favorite tweet of them all was, 
someone drawing out a sketch of a website and then having that website be completely like transformed into into a digital environment with zero code. Um, and what I've found, I guess, like has been the biggest like oh shit moment for me as it relates to AI is like we are already starting to see things that you couldn't have imagined that are actually happening. And then all of a sudden your brain explodes and you're like, oh, there's entire businesses to be built out of this and things to be built out of this. So I feel unable to predict how that's going to work. What I will say is that AI and media isn't necessarily net new. Like we leveraged it for a very long time at the Washington Post as it relates to like building efficiencies, which was kind of like, the biggest opportunity for how we could have leveraged it back then. So AB testing headlines, right? Like instead of like using editors to create different headlines, like how can we understand like who the reader is, what their preferences are, understand what's most likely to be clicked, what won't be clicked, what images to use and have that all be, you know, automated um, in real time. Like that was something that we leveraged. We would want to do politics coverage in like smaller congressional districts or cover high school basketball. And we weren't going to put reporters on that. So you could effectively like build a skeleton and then AI would actually write those articles, leveraging stat APIs and other sort of um, semantic API, like, like semantic languages through the APIs. So like I've been in it and I was fascinated back then around the notion that like, wow, this could really build efficiencies. And the same, the same dialogue that's happening now happened then, which is like the questions we'd get are like, is this going to replace reporters? Like, what's the value of journalists? And, you know, the position back then was like, no, this is like focused on building efficiencies, helping to support, you know, what they're already doing, but make it a lot more effective. And we've seen that right through like better engagement, you know, the ability to like, hopefully, you know, build more efficiencies and fact checking and so forth. But this shit is like, blowing my mind like how how like i mean we moved from like ai creating music which i thought was just phenomenal to you know the ability for us to basically come to come to terms with google may not be the dot com that you go to to get information you may be able to just get that wherever and whenever which was just two months ago to now seeing that like oh you want to like create a website or you want to go through legal documents or you like, you know, the example of like passing like the bar exam and things like that, I think are just happening at such a massive scale. And I'm like a tech optimist as it relates to that, because I feel that it just opens up so many more frontiers and horizons for us to be building and thinking on. Like, of course, like similarly to anything, there's positive negatives and People will expose and comment and be advocates for both sides. But, you know, the speed at which this is happening has been fascinating. The one thing I'll say as it relates to crypto is I don't think crypto should see AI as a trend that they need to posture against or compete against. Like what I think, especially as it relates to media, is that people are going to be able to create songs via AI or if you can start to create more content or it really helps democratize, as we said before, like as Facebook and Google and others, like really expanded the long tail of who could create online. And this just continues to expand people's skill sets of like who actually had the ability to do this versus not. And now everyone may, I think crypto should think of themselves as hyper supportive to the means of which this will be created. And that could be, how do I prove that, that my AI you know, created this piece of content? How can I manage 
how that's licensed, right? How can I better like form and understand like how best to like build communities around this? And I think crypto could do like a very, very, very good job at that. And I want to see more companies. I feel like I haven't seen enough companies because they're probably like nobody wants to fall into the hype. But I do think that this notion of like crypto for AI and thinking about an infrastructural type layer of like how distribution works, how monetization works, how identity works is going to be super advantageous for a lot of these companies. So if they're building, they should reach out to the both of us. <laughs> totally agreed. <laughs> uh, so so I, I, I always think about this and I argue with my partner, Dan, about this, you know, in, in a world where AI has made the cost of creating content, websites, whatever, very cheap, like exceptionally cheap. Um, wh who is the advantage? Like who is the edge? And what, what I keep coming back to is like, audience distribution community and but those are like pretty like they're not hard because normally it's like oh we have a technical edge like we're we have a monopoly on this market we're the only ones doing this and we're like amazing whatever um this is more it's like well everyone's gonna have the best tech everyone's gonna have the, the you know create content like that how do you how do you out compete i think one thing that's constant through all of these tech evolutions is that there is always a discount of storytelling, the creative side of work. I think it's exciting because people who might not have felt as creative or may not be able to code or may not be able to, you know, create a movie or write a song now could have the opportunity to do something like that. But it always kind of comes at the behest of saying, oh yes, and like, you know, everyone's gonna be able to do it. Thus, like people who are creatives or experts who have done it in the past are now at risk. Like I, I don't always buy that. Like I, I think that even with AI, right, the Beatles will still be like the top listened to <laughs> band worldwide, right? I think personality is very important as it relates to a lot of these things like human elements, relationships, like how people are is going to be very critical to brand building and creation and story building. I do think it opens up a ton of means for creative people to expand their creative creativity and hopefully again, like democratize the ability for more people to come in who otherwise wouldn't. But I believe it's TBD as to whether, you know, the classic way of people creating and the art forms that they've created are really going to be as at risk or, it's going to help strengthen what they're doing even more and invite, you know, more people in. Like, I, I think it's a debate. Like, I'm not surprised that you're having that debate because I do think that it's an ongoing debate and this stuff is changing every single day. But I would say like when, you know, when Substack came out, it was the death of media companies. And, you know, when, you know, when Facebook, when TikTok came out, it was the death of record labels and music. And, you know, we're not seeing that. Um, this is again, like very different, but I think like, I think it's, smart to think about this stuff as like compounding, like there's going to be net new, there's going to be expanding and there's going to be things that die. And, you know, we'll kind of see who marches up that hill, but it's exciting. It's, it's something I'm very excited about. Amazing. Jared, thank you so much for, you know, coming on and chatting with me. I feel like I, I learned so much and I'm uh, looking forward to chatting again with you soon. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It was awesome. See you, man.